This is Our American Stories, and we tell every kind of story here. And today we have a special kind of sports story. Catherine Switzer was the first woman to officially run the Boston Marathon. Today, we have her telling her whole story of why she ran it and what happened because she did. Here's Catherine. I was the first woman to actually register for the race and pin on a bib and go to the start line and run the Boston Marathon. There was a a woman the year before named Bobby Gibb who jumped in the race um, unregistered, um, and I don't want to take anything away from her. But what is really amazing about my story, sometimes the worst things in your life can become the best things in your life. And that is that when I showed up at the starting line of the Boston Marathon. I was I was with my coach, my teammates, and it was a snowy, sleety, horrible day. And yet all the guys in the race were so wonderful and welcoming to me. And they were excited that a woman was registered and signed up for the race. And they would say, hey, I wish my wife would run. I wish my girlfriend would run. Go for it. We're with you all the way. And they were extremely, extremely motivating. And it was a wonderful wonderful time until the gun went off and then down the street we went. I was very, very happy to finally be running the Boston Marathon. And the official truck came by uh, and the press truck came by at the same time. First was the press truck and they were honking at us to move over because they were coming through and taking pictures, shooting from the back of the truck as we were running toward them. And the officials um, and the photographers just went crazy seeing there was a girl in the race wearing bib numbers. And they began teasing one of the officials on the official bus, and his name was Jock Semple. He was the co-race director of the race. And they began teasing him and saying, Hey, Jocko, there's a girl in your race and she's wearing numbers. I wonder what her mother calls her, you know, Kurt, Carrie, or Kim. And they were referring to the race program because I had signed up for the Boston Marathon with my initials, KV Switzer. But the reason uh, that it incited the official was because they were teasing him about it. And he jumped off the press bus and went down the street after me and jumped on me and grabbed me and said, get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers and tried to rip my bib numbers off. And my coach was trying to get him away from me and he was saying, leave her alone, leave her alone. She's okay, I've trained her. Um, And he swatted my coach away and said, stay out of this. And they came back after me. But my boyfriend was also running with me. And my boyfriend just happened to be a 235 pound ex-All-America football player who was only running the Boston Marathon because if a girl could do it, he could do it. But he came in very handy at that moment because he smacked the official and knocked the official out of the race instead. And my coach screamed, run like hell, and down the street we went. And we were, we were really, really scared. I was absolutely terrified because I didn't know why this official had attacked me. I couldn't understand um, why he was so angry. And, and I began thinking, well, it's probably because he's the race director. He thinks I'm, I'm making a fool of him um, and trying to you know, sneak into the race. When all along, you know, I officially registered because that's what the rules said you had to do. But anyway, um, the whole incident was captured in front of the press truck. And the pictures of this incident were flashed around the world. Even before I finished the race, people around the world were seeing these images of this girl running and girl being attacked by race director. 
and then being saved by burly boyfriend. Because in 1967, that's what people love to think is that, you know, if a girl did something and was a damsel in distress, she was going to get saved by the knight on the white charger. And, and that's essentially what happened. But the whole story was bigger than that. And the whole story was a much bigger one about why women weren't included in the Boston Marathon, why this official was so angry with me for running, what was the problem here. Um, it wasn't the road of free and open space for everybody. So certainly it was a moment that changed my life. I often say I started the Boston Marathon as a girl and I finished the Boston Marathon as a grown woman because the reality is you can't run 26.2 miles. That's the distance of a marathon, 26 miles, 385 yards. You can't run that distance and stay angry. And uh, through the next few miles, I tried to figure out why this official was so angry with me and 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 I, and I was really furious with him and I was afraid, afraid of him but along about Heartbreak Hill about 21 miles into the race the anger really left me and it left me with wondering why um, and I said well that's because he's a product of his time he's a man who doesn't believe women can do arduous things and shouldn't be allowed to do them for that reason because maybe he believes that you know it would make us unfeminine or there was something socially wrong with this it was just not appropriate for women to be in what was traditionally a man's race although as i said there were no rules written about this um and i sort of forgave him because he was just a product of his time but then i got angry at women and i kind of wondered where they were you know, the longest distance then in the Olympic Games for women was only 800 meters, twice around the track. And it was always assumed that if a woman ran more than that, that something horrible would happen to her, you know, like she would turn into a man or hair would grow on her chest or she'd turn into some behemoth and her uterus would fall out. She'd never have children. I mean, the myths were just unbelievable. And I think all the women believed those myths. I didn't because I came from a family of great pioneers and, and homesteaders and people who had done very, very tough things. Marathon was no big deal for the likes of my family. And so I was surrounded by the images of women who could do anything in my family. And I realized that the women weren't there in the Boston Marathon because they were afraid. They were afraid of those myths that they had heard and they believed those myths. And they didn't have any opportunities to prove otherwise or reinforcement to prove otherwise or, you know, belief and encouragement to prove otherwise. And then I realized if I could create opportunities for women so that they could feel as good as I felt, felt very empowered and strong, if I could do that for them, then we could really, really change a lot of things. And you're listening to the voice of Catherine Switzer. I started the Boston Marathon as a girl. I finished it as a grown woman. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, that pioneer spirit she was taught, there it was for the world to see. Catherine Switzer's story continues here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we left off hearing Catherine Switzer's story of being the first woman to officially run in the Boston Marathon. And it seems almost, well, unthinkable now that we thought these things, but we did. And by the way, lots of doctors thought these things. We return to her story, though, and how she came to run the race in the first place. Running had given me just about everything in my life, and that, that I had felt great, I felt empowered, and it had reflected in many other areas of my life, not just running. So by the time I crossed the finish line, I already had kind of a life plan, which was to create opportunities for women in running, and also for me to become a better athlete. I finished that first Boston Marathon in four hours and 20 minutes. And I knew people were going to tease me um, and not take me seriously because in those days, in the late 60s, the only people who ran were people who ran well, and or pretty well anyway. Very few people just jogged. And people would say, oh, that's just a jogging time. And that's exactly what happened. The next day, the official himself who threw me, tried to throw me out of the race said I could walk it that fast. I mean, that was really a horrible thing to say on top of everything else. And the fact is, is that you can't walk it that fast, <laughs> not even close. And, um, and so I said, okay, watch me. I'm going to try to become a good athlete. But let's go back and think about what got me there in the first place. Because I think knowing a person's history and why they were motivated to do something and how and who changed their lives is the, maybe the, even the bigger part of the story. And in my case, I began running when I was 12 years old because I wanted to make the field hockey team in my high school. And I was a little skinny girl, prepubescent, very nervous about going to a big high school with with grown-ups essentially there. Um, And my father said, listen, if you want to make that field hockey team, you should run a mile a day. And if you'd run a mile a day, you'd be one of the best players on the team. He was really a very motivating guy, very convincing. And... So I said, oh God, I could never run a mile a day. And he said, sure you could, you could do it right now. I know you could. And he um, helped uh, me measure off our yard. It was seven laps. And all through Washington DC, stinking hot summer, I ran this mile a day in preparation for the autumn when I would go to high school to try out for the field hockey team. And my dad was right. When I tried out for the team, it was really one of the best players, not because I had any skills. I mean, I never even had a stick in my hand but because I never got tired and I was in great condition and I could just about outrun everybody. So when I made that team, I felt really, really proud of myself. And so I kept running every day because I felt maybe it was magic. I didn't realize it was just conditioning. I thought in my kind of little childish brain that this is pure magic. Well, my little brain was was actually 100% right because I've been running for 58 years and it is magic. You know, the, the, whole, the whole thing about running is not really just about conditioning or, or getting fast or becoming a good athlete. It's really about the sense of empowerment and strength and confidence and accomplishment that it gives you. And so here I was now going into um, my teenage years and going into high school, feeling like I had a victory under my belt every day that nobody could take away from me. And that was really, really important for kids who, you know, you're facing all kinds of odd behaviors and meeting people, um, you know, and, and, and you don't know kind of how to make proper choices. And if you feel really confident about yourself, 
it helps you make a decision that's that's a right decision and not a wrong decision in many cases. And it was phenomenal that also it, it perpetuated the the concept for me of that if I could do that that like a mile a day, I bet I could run two miles a day. If I could make the field hockey team, I bet I could write for the school newspaper. I've always used running as an empowerment tool for myself to give me confidence to take on some of the most insane challenges you can imagine. And things I would never imagine doing or things that have happened to me, um, I've been able to both endure, prevail over, or continue on with even something better because I've had the confidence that the running has given me. It's amazing. In a bigger sense, that's what's the most important part of the story is the transformational experience of running for women and how it changes their lives and helps them um, control their lives in ways they never believed they could and to take on responsibilities and make decisions that they were denied for many, many years. Because they say, you know, if I can run a mile, then I can run five miles. And then they run 10 miles. And then when they run a marathon, 26.2 miles, they realize they can do anything. When I went to university after high school, I was running three miles a day and I wanted to um, naturally run at university as well. But uh, Syracuse University at the time had absolutely no intercollegiate sports for women, if you can imagine that. And I didn't know what to do. So I decided that I would ask the men's track coach and cross country coach if I could come and run on the men's team. Now I never would have had the courage to do that if I hadn't had that base all through high school of running. But I did and he was very nice, but you could see he was trying hard not to laugh at me. Um, he said I couldn't run officially on the team, it was against NCAA rules, but um, he would welcome me if I wanted to come and work out with the team. And I did, and he was very, very surprised that I showed up. This was the, on the eve of the women's liberation movement. It was the autumn of 1966. And I thought when I went out to run with the men that they would think I was trying to be in their face, that I was trying to you know, show that I was tough and I deserved to be on the team. And I wasn't that way at all, and they didn't perceive that. They really encouraged and motivated me and were very happy to see me and very, very welcoming. One guy in particular was the volunteer coach for the team who was an ex-marathoner. Uh, he was 50 when I met him and I always joke that he was really ancient, you know, <laughs> 50 years old, I was 19. Um, and he felt really sorry for me because all these boys that were running were scholarship boys and they were fast. I couldn't keep up with them at all. Um, I was running three miles a day. They were running like six or eight miles a day. And this guy, his name was Arnie Briggs, had been an ex-marathoner. And he was now injured. Bad knees, bad Achilles. So he decided to start just jogging with me. And as we jogged along, he would tell me stories of his ancient running days, including 15 Boston marathons. And every night out running together after, after classes, he would tell me another story about the Boston Marathon. And, you know, here I was, you know, I had heard of the Boston Marathon and kind of in the back of my mind, I always thought that that would be kind of a dream goal to one day have. 
But here I was every day learning about Clarence DeMar and Tarzan Brown and Johnny the Kelly the Elder and Johnny Kelly the Younger. All these heroes of the sport became sort of my Olympian gods, if you see what I mean. And pretty soon, as it always does in Syracuse, by even by late October, it began snowing and the snow was coming down and all the men in the cross country team finished their season and they went inside to run in the field house on the, on the indoor track. And it was so stuffy and, and smelly and hot in there. Um, I said to Arnie, my coach, uh, now he's my coach, my running partner, let's stay outside and run. And he said, have you ever run through a Syracuse winter? You've never been here before. And I said, well, it can't be that tough. Well, you have no idea. I mean, it was like a hundred and what, 90 inches of snow that year. And there were days and nights that it was 30 and 40 degrees below zero. It was absolutely incredible. But I kept hearing the stories of the old Boston marathons and Arnie and I would plow through the snow and plow through the darkness together. And he would tell me all these stories again and again. And finally, one night um, in January, I said, I'm so sick of hearing about the Boston Marathon. Let's just run it. And then this was the, uh, the first big turning point. Arnie, my beloved coach and friend, said, a woman can't run the Boston Marathon. Women are too weak and too fragile. And I burst out laughing. I said, we are out here running 10 miles in a blizzard in the dark, and you're telling me I can't run a marathon? And he said, 10 miles is not 26. And he said, a woman can't do it. Women are too weak and too fragile. And boy, did we argue. And I finally threatened him with not running with him anymore if he didn't believe some woman somewhere could run the Boston Marathon. And I reminded him that I had read in the newspaper that Roberta Gibb had run the Boston Marathon the year before. And he just burst out in anger. And he said, no dame ever ran no marathon. He just couldn't believe, get his mind around the fact that a woman could do this, this, you know, ultimate distance. And when we come back, you're going to hear Catherine's rebuttal to her friend and her coach and her mentor. And she was going to prove him wrong all by herself. Catherine Switzer's story continues here on Our American Stories. Turn to the story of Catherine Switzer. And of course, she had been told by so many people up till now that, well, women just shouldn't be running in marathons, not certainly the Boston Marathon. And this is her story and her voice. And my goodness, what a voice. Let's pick up where we last left off. Her mentor, friend, and coach, Arnie Briggs, had told her there's just no way dames should be running in any marathon. Let's hear Catherine's rebuttal. Finally, he said, look, if any woman could do it, I believe you could do it, but even you would have to prove it to me. And he said, in fact, if you'd run the distance and practice, I'd be the first person to take you to the Boston Marathon. And I said, hot diggity, there you go. I've got a coach, I've got a goal, I've got a dream. Um, And best of all, I've got a running buddy. 
and I'm going to show him that we can do this. So we trained and trained and trained and trained, and oh gosh, I would say it was late March, and came the day we were going to do 26 miles in practice. Um, when we were finishing up the 26 miles, Arnie, my coach, was so impressed. He said, "Wow!" He said, "I can't believe it. You look great." He said, "I'm, I'm convinced." He said, "You know, uh, I'm really, really, really impressed that you can do this distance." And I said, "You know, I think we mismeasured the course." And he said, "What do you mean?" I said, "I think it's short. I think we should do another five miles just to make sure." When we go to Boston, that nothing can stop us. That we can, it's, it's, we can finish that whole race. And he said, "Oh, come on, you're not serious about running another five miles?" He said, "Yeah, let's just keep going. Let's do another loop." So we're running now 31 miles. And in the last mile of this workout, Arnie began uh, passing out during the course of the workout. And um, I said, "Come on, Arnie, we can do this. We can do this." And he was just gone on his feet, just weaving all over the road. I said, come on, one more mile, come on, come on. I put my arm through his, I pulled him along. I said, come on, come on, one more mile. We could do it. And when we finished this last piece, came across our imaginary finish line, I threw my arms around him. I said, we did it. We're going to Boston. And he passed out. And when he came to, he said, women have hidden potential in endurance and stamina. It was an amazing moment. It was an amazing moment because both of us had discovered something really interesting, that the longer it got, the better I got. That when we went out to run eight or 10 miles and the guys on the team would come and run with us, you know, they were always pushing the pace and I couldn't keep up with them. But when it got to 12, 15 miles, we were pretty evenly matched. And then after that, they said, you know, the hell with you guys. We don't want to, we don't want to run any further than this. This is crazy stuff. And really what was happening was that, that as the distance got better, my natural attributes, the female natural attributes of endurance and stamina were really kicking in. The ability to have fat, more fat than men, convert that fat to a fuel source, to stay warm and have still energy over the long haul, really, really paid off. Even to the point where Arne himself, a trained marathoner, couldn't take the distance. And it was an amazing moment to realize that. And now it's something that's changing the way we're looking at female athletes in general. You know, for 3,000 years, the Olympics have been about strength, speed, power. Men, men excel in those things, in jumping higher, throwing further, hitting harder, going faster. But when it comes to flexibility, balance, stamina and endurance, women have it all over the guys. The problem is, is that for 3,000 years, we haven't had the opportunity to have sports. So, I mean, until very, very recently, in terms of the world's history of sport, it's only been in the last 75 to 100 years that we have been able to participate in, in sports and have sports in competitions and in, the, in public, etc. So what we're, we're looking at now is really an exciting era. The next 50 years are going to be very, very exciting when sports perhaps and events will be created that you and I can't even imagine um, that take advantage of women's unique capabilities. I would say getting attacked by the official in the Boston Marathon was at that point in my life certainly the worst thing that had ever happened to me. I was humiliated, I was embarrassed, I was made to uh, feel ashamed, um, and I was second-guessing myself 
and my worthiness to be in this race. And it wasn't until I had that split second of, should I quit? Should I, should I step out of this race? Am I doing something wrong? It was just a split second of fear where I wanted to really go home to my mother. And then I realized if I did that, nobody would believe that women could run a marathon. Nobody would believe that women deserve to be there. They would say, oh, these women are just barging into places where they're not welcome and they can't do it anyway. And I knew then that I had to finish that race. And that was the biggest and most important decision I think I've ever made in my life because it changed the whole rest of my life. People often say, um, oh, Catherine, you were destined for this moment of running this race, of, of colliding with the official, of the photographs of the incident going around the world. Those photographs probably would have gone around the world, but the bigger story is what happened afterwards. Things happen to everybody, but often people don't act on what happens. I acted on what happened. I made the decision to finish the race, even if I was going to finish on my hands and my knees if I had to. And I wanted to prove to the world that women could do this. But it was the actualization then in the race itself with the time I had to think that I realized that if women only had the same opportunities that I had, an encouraging father, an encouraging men's team, a coach named Arnie, you know, who ran with me and encouraged me. Um, all of these things really helped me and most women didn't have those. So when I finished the race, as I said, I wanted to become a better athlete and I wanted to create these opportunities. Becoming a better athlete was the easiest part of the conversation. Maybe not easy, but simple anyway, because training works. I trained very hard. I trained really hard. Sometimes I trained over 100 miles a week, twice a day workouts, a 27 mile run every Sunday, and I got to be pretty good. In fact, I won the New York City Marathon and I was second in Boston with a two hour and 51 minute marathon performance, which even by today's standards is excellent. And for a long time, it was an Olympic qualifier. But I realized then that I realized if I could do that, how much talent existed out there that wasn't getting the same opportunity or didn't have the same drive or the same confidence to do that kind of um, training and that kind of work. So I then decided the most important thing is to get women official into events. A group of women, uh, myself included, worked hard at Boston to get women official in Boston. We were successful with that in 1972. And then we organized the first ever women's road race in Central Park, the mini marathon. And that was such a success, I realized that women maybe wanted their own events so that they wouldn't be intimidated by being around stronger, faster people. And I began organizing uh, and getting sponsorship for a series of women's races around the world, ultimately becoming known as the Avon International Running Circuit. And this became a career for me where eventually we organized 400 races in 27 countries for over a million women. And the data and statistics that we got from those races allowed for the marathon to be included in the Olympic Games because the Olympic Committee um, uh, had the data on performances, the data on international participation, 
And with sponsorship money, we were able to get some doctors to write up reports showing that women actually were better at endurance events than power events. So with this evidence in hand, we went to the International Olympic Committee and were admitted into the Olympic Games as an official Olympic event for the first time in 1984. And you're hearing Catherine Switzer, and what a story. It just keeps getting better. Her push, her drive to, well, find out what women can do. What were the real boundaries? We're about to find out more. Catherine Switzer's story here on Our American Stories. To hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, sign up for our newsletter, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Turn to Our American Stories and go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up for our free newsletter and you'll get stories just like this one. Five of our best ones each week right into your mailbox. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and we'll get you our five best stories of the week. Sign up for our free and terrific weekly newsletter. And we're returning now to Catherine's story. She went on to do much more after that 1967 race we left off hearing that Catherine had successfully gotten the marathon to be a part of the 1984 Olympic Games in Los Angeles, California. There it is. She's about to go into the tunnel. Now, the people in the Coliseum, most of them know what's going on because part of this race has been up on that big television screen, so they have been watching it. They certainly know what the situation is, and I'm sure they are right now anticipating the imminent arrival of Joan Benoit as she gets into some welcome shade and then very shortly out into the sunlight. When Joan Benoit Samuelson won that race, the American from Maine, when she came into the stadium, 90,000 people, you know, stood on their feet and screamed and cheered. It was utterly, utterly fantastic. It was something to me that was um, the ultimate in acceptance. But more than that, it was a television broadcast to 2.2 million people that showed convincingly that women could run heroically, strong, deserve to be in the Olympic Games, and deserve their equality. It was an absolute game changer, absolute leveling of the playing field in running. Everybody knows how far 26.2 miles or 42.2 kilometers is. Everybody understands distance because they've walked it or they've ridden a bike over the distance or driven it or even ridden a donkey in some countries. And when people from around the world saw women running and running so well, they all understood what that meant. They meant it meant that they had underestimated women's capacity for achievement. Um, and even heroism. So that to me was as important as giving women the right to vote because the vote was about our social and intellectual acceptance and this was about our physical acceptance. 
the Olympics are the ultimate, really, in sports recognition. And now we were running the toughest event uh, in the highest forum, uh, just like the men. And there isn't a tougher event in the Olympic Games than the marathon. So that, to me, was about the physical equality. And that's why it was, to me, comparable to giving women the right to vote. One was about intellectual and social acceptance, the other about the physical acceptance. He has done it. Joan Lindor, the winner of the first ever Olympic Women's Marathon. When you think then about the future, which I think about all the time now, um, you say, wow, we've achieved that. The rest is going to be easy. Well, the rest is never easy. Even now, all these years later, there are women in the world who are not allowed to go out of the house alone, not allowed to have their own passport, not allowed to drive a car or get an education. All the old myths still prevail, and women believe them because they have no opportunity to believe anything else. You only know what's around you. You can dream of some things, but you really only understand what's closest to you. So with that in mind, who would have ever imagined that my old bib number, 261, the number that the race official tried to pull off of me way back in 1967, suddenly became this magic number around the world, quite, quite virally, and it was really amazing, uh, became a number meaning fearless in the face of adversity. People were sending me pictures of themselves running their first race, and on their front, they would have their official bib number from, you know, the Tokyo Marathon or the New York City Marathon or whatever. But on their back, they would be wearing 261. And when people started sending me pictures of their tattoos, I began to take this really seriously. I didn't know what kind of movement was occurring from my old bib number. So I got together with some friends of mine and we decided, what are we going to do with this? Do we create a business? And actually what we decided to do is to create a nonprofit. We created the nonprofit 261 Fearless as a way of empowering women around the world to take the first step in running or even walking. Because we know if they go out and walk or run and have somebody with them who believes in them and encourages them, they can overcome so much else in their life. Because as I said before, running itself is transformational. And if they have the courage to take that first step and we can help give them the courage to take that first step, they too can become empowered and aspire to so much more in their lives. Running can change everything. It has already around the world. We've created a social revolution um, in North America. There are more women runners now in North America than men, and these women are not running to be Olympic athletes. These women are running because it empowers them. And this movement is going globally. And we are hoping that 261 Fearless will reach places, and we're working very hard on this, to reach places where women have no opportunities whatsoever. And they're going to be difficult to reach in some places and difficult to engage, perhaps, but you know, running has done it before and it'll do it again. You know, you're never too old, you're never too slow, you're never too big, you're never too unathletic to put on a pair of sneakers and let running, walking, jogging change your life. I've seen it a million times. And every time you go out and you watch a marathon, you will see people who you couldn't ever imagine uh, could do 
this event, 26 miles, 385 yards. There are people without arms or legs who are blind, people in wheelchairs, people who push themselves along, people who take a day or two or even five to cover the distance, but they do it. The capacity for human achievement is absolutely astonishing. One of the greatest moments in my life happened April of 2017, which was when I decided, hey, you know what? I'm still in pretty good shape. I'm going to run the Boston Marathon for my 50th anniversary. And no other woman has ever done that. There are plenty of 70-year-old, 80-year-old, even 90-year-old women who run marathons, but nobody has run one 50 years after she first did, which is just testimony to how few women ran 50 years ago. But to go through the streets of Boston 50 years later and to have all of those thousands and thousands of spectators cheering for you, many, many hundreds of whom knew my story and had big posters that they held up, said, go Catherine, go 261 Fearless, go women, equality for women, was really, really phenomenal. And it was amazing how easy the race was. Every mile got faster for me. And when I came across the finish line, in 4.44, I was really only 24 minutes slower than I was when I was 20 years old. And I love telling this story because I just really want to encourage people to realize you're never too old and you're never too slow you, to get it back, to feel that sense of health and optimism, and to realize that the future of good health for all of us really may be staying active all your life. People always ask me about Jock Semple and what happened to him and did he ever apologize? Well, frankly, no, he never apologized. But after five years, um, we became best of friends. And people are astonished to hear this. But here's the point. He was a man of his time. And when we became official in the Boston Marathon five years after I ran in 1972, he suddenly became very aware, he had to become aware of the fact that women were taking running seriously, that we loved running. And that's what he saw finally. And he came up to me on the starting line of the Boston Marathon the following year and gave me a big kiss on the cheek. He was a Scotsman. And he said, come on, lass, let's get a wee bit of notoriety and turn me to these TV cameras. And the photographs of Jock Semple and Catherine Switzer making up on the starting line of the Boston Marathon was a photograph that, that really spoke volumes about how people can change. Um, and to me, how important forgiveness is. Because I really forgave Jock Semple when we came over Heartbreak Hill in the 1967 race. You know, I realized he was a product of his time. In a way, it wasn't even his fault. I visited him, in, in fact, a few hours before he died. And people say, whoa, that's a lot of forgiveness. And I say, yeah, you know, life is actually too short not to forgive. And over the years, we had become good friends, and I wanted to see one last time and say goodbye to a man who completely not only changed my life, but changed millions of women's lives. So he was, in fact, a guy who helped the women's running movement probably more than anybody else in spite of himself. And what a story and what a voice, folks. Sometimes the worst things in life, she said, become the best things in life and my goodness that Jack Semple tackled her and that she forgave him and became friends a testimony to how to live a life what a story one of our favorites here on Our American Stories and by the way to hear all that we do again go to Our American Network sign up for our free weekly newsletter 
Our five best stories will come to you, and you'll feel better about being a human being, better about being an American. Stories like these, they're everywhere. We'd love to hear yours. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Catherine Switzer's story, the story of women and sports in America, here on Our American Stories. Habib and this is our American stories and we love music we love what music does to us and we love that everybody loves music I've never met somebody who says oh I don't like music I've never met that person and one of the most influential people ever in the music business has a story you won't believe and so well we wanted to tell it to you and we love to do it sometimes in scripted form and with one of our narrators putting together a piece along with our really great writing crew and production crew and this man's life story. Well, you know his work. Wait till you hear his story. In the world of music, there are, of course, people besides musicians. And they can have as much influence as anyone who sings or plays an instrument. In this country and in our time, there is a hugely influential man whose name you are probably not familiar with, but whose work you know very well. So I'll tell you a story. That is the way Atlantic Records founder, Ahmed Erdogan, almost always began his conversations. We begin our story looking back at the last half century and the Atlantic sound which sprang from the small independent record label Ahmed Erdogan co-founded in 1947 single-handedly influencing the future direction of contemporary music. Born in Istanbul, Turkey, Ahmet's father became the Turkish ambassador to the United States when Ahmet was just 12. His older brother, Nesrey, introduced Ahmet to jazz and black music when he was only seven. So the move to America was a dream come true. Here's Ahmet. I had never been so happy in my life because I was going to the lands of cowboys and Indians, gangsters, beautiful showgirls. I'd seen 42nd Street as a movie, you know, it was a fabulous thing with these great girls dancing and everything. And of course, the greatest thing, the land of jazz. Immediately upon arrival, Amit went looking for the jazz for the America he and his brother had imagined. Here's Ahmet recalling the story of his search for Harlem jazz while only in the seventh grade. When I came to New York, I stayed with the Consul General of Turkey, 
and I heard that they'd seen a particular movie. And I said, I want to see that movie. And they said, well, we've seen that movie, but I, we'll drop you there. We'll go see another movie that's up the street, and then we'll pick you up after the movie's over. I said, great. So they took me to this movie house. Five minutes later, I hailed the first cab. I said, take me to Harlem. The cab driver says, where to in Harlem? I said, I didn't know where to because I thought Harlem was a place where you just go there and everybody is having fun in the streets. I said, no, no, you got to know. I said, well, I want to go, you know, someplace where there's some real good music and everything, you know. So it took me to a place called the Plantation Club. The band was Hot Lips Page. And he was amazed that I knew some of his songs and so forth. And he said, it's terrific. He said, what college do you go to? I was in seventh grade, you know. So I said, oh, I'm going to Harvard, you know. So I said, oh, okay. So he says, he said, well, go sit over there. He says, says uh, I'll send one of the girls to sit with you. So this beautiful chorus girl goes, you know, we ordered some wine and so on. I mean, they did the whole show. Wait a minute. What about the guys who were supposed to pick him up at the movie? I had forgotten about that. The show was fabulous. Beautiful girls, the dancing was her, and the band was fabulous. And, you know, play jazz. And then we'll say it's for the second show. And then the second show's over, and this girl takes me to a rent party. And James B. Johnson is playing the piano. They got all kinds of food going back and forth, and I'm drinking scotch and sodas, you know. And I had met Sidney Bechet through my brother. He was there. I mean, he said, what are you doing here? I said, well, just, he says, what are you drinking? I said, scotch and soda. He said, you're too young to drink. He grabs out of my hand. He says, here, smoke this. <laughs> so around 6.30, this guy said, what do you want to do? I said, I better go home. <laughs> she says, don't you want to hang out? I said, no, no. <laughs> so boom, I got to have a taxi. And apparently, the whole New York police force is looking for me. I mean, they've called my father, oh, my mother goes, out of her mind. I've disappeared. <laughs> they take me with guards on the train with me. I go back. That's the only time in my life my father saw me, he gave me a slap across the face. It's the only time he ever hit me because he was so angry. Well, I, you know, but uh, it was impossible to explain to, to my parents or to anybody that I love jazz, so, you know, it was all for the love of jazz. I wasn't, you know, but I had to get, to get there. This is Lee Habib, and my goodness, Ahmed Ertigan got there all right. And when we come back, you're going to hear more of this impresario story and the love of music that animated this man. And again, where artists are today without men like this, 
without guys scouring the planet to make artists be all they can be, coach them, work with them in the studio, bring them along. In the end, Ahmad Ertigan was an A&R guy to the core. More about this great man after these messages. Our American Stories, and we continue with the life story of Ahmet Ertegen, a man you may have never heard of, but my goodness, thank goodness for his love of music, which pushed him to discover some of the great artists of the 20th century. Let's continue with his story. I love jazz, so, you know, it was all for the love of jazz. I wasn't, you know, but I had to get, to get there. It was that love which drove Amit to spend countless hours digging through old vinyl, eventually acquiring 25,000 records, the largest collection of jazz and blues in the world, which he had amassed by going door to door through ghettos and hanging out in black record shops. The Erdogan brothers made history when Amit was just 17. Here's Amit. In 1940, my brother and I had the first integrated jazz concerts ever given in Washington. We broke the color line in the sense that we had mixed bands and mixed audience. These concerts featured people like Ella Fitzgerald and Duke Ellington. The police would often be called to the embassy and would be dumbfounded to see blacks dining with whites. This wasn't the only time Ahmet had run-ins with the police. In Annapolis, I was going to college. I was 17 years old, and I went to hear a band in a black club in Annapolis, and they arrested me when I came out. I asked the judge, what law did I break? He said, you broke the Jim Crow law. I said, is that written down anywhere? He said, no, but everybody understands that. He looked at my name and says, I guess you're a foreigner. That you don't understand what our laws are. I said, I don't consider that a law because it's not written anywhere. Then, in 1947, Ahmet opened Atlantic with Herb Abramson. Here's Ahmet. I was intent on starting a label. So I talked my dentist at the time. I talked him into mortgaging his house and investing $10,000. Ahmet recruited Tom Dowd, a young genius engineer and nuclear physicist who turned his skills producing atomic bombs for the Manhattan Project to engineering records. Ahmet chose staff for Atlantic the same way he chose artists. He listened, he trusted his gut, and he showed unerring good judgment. 
Pushing back to the desks at night, Amit would record in a tiny one-bedroom broken-down Manhattan apartment with a creaking floor and a sloping ceiling. Here's Billboard music critic turned Atlantic team member, Jerry Wexler. That's where I got some back trouble that lasted me for several decades. And after the session broke down, the desk would move back and it became became an office again. From the start, Amit had a vision of what he wanted to put out on Atlantic. Here's the sort of record we need to make, he once said. There's a black man living in the outskirts of Louisiana. He works hard for his money. He has to be tight with a dollar. One morning, he hears a song on the radio. It's urgent, bluesy, authentic, and irresistible. He can't live without this record. He drops everything, jumps in his pickup, and drives 25 miles to the first record store he finds. we can make that kind of music, we can make it in the business. Because music publishers were not eager, as Ahmet said, to provide material to a hole-in-the-wall company called Atlantic, he began writing songs himself. We had to find some R&B material and put them into a funky groove. So that's why I started to write songs for them, you know, because you couldn't just go to a music publisher and find material. They didn't have any songs for them, so we had to make up those songs. In a recording booth located in a Times Square arcade, Amit would make a vinyl demo of a song that he would then play for the artist in the studio. Using the pseudonym Nugetra, his last name spelled backwards so he would not embarrass his family. Here's Ahmed. In the very early days of Atlantic, I really thought of this thing as a passing thing. I mean, you know, I was still going to college. I started this label. But I thought that eventually I'd become a civil servant in Turkey like my father and grandfather and so on. And I thought, well, if I ever got involved in politics, maybe it wouldn't be good for me if somebody found I'd written a song called I Want to Rock You All Night or something <laughs> like that. Ahmet wrote more than 66 songs, many of them hits, including Ray Charles' Mess Around. Here's Ahmet performing Mess Around for Ray while Ray plays piano. Here's Ray performing it. Now this band's gonna play from nine to one. Everybody here's gonna have some fun doing the mess around. Ah, doing the mess around. Amit also wrote the Clover's hit, Fool, 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 which would later be recorded by Elvis Presley. Here's Amit on writing for the Clover's. So when I got the Clovers, I said, well, I can't get a song. So I forced them to record this song. A miracle happened. I was never in my life so amazed. All I could hear was this song blaring out of all these music shops. And the Clovers did not want to sing it, you know. It was forcing soul on the people, you know. The definitive story of their time together 
which both Amit and Herb loved to tell, concerned the night in New Orleans when they went to find an unknown genius named Professor Longhair, who was playing in a joint across the river where no taxi driver would take them. Their cabbie dropped them off in the middle of a field. After walking a mile in the darkness, they saw a brightly lit house in the middle of town, so full of people that they seemed to be falling out of the windows as music blared. Talking their way past the guy at the door, who assumed they were cops, the pair made their way inside. Out came Professor Longhair, who played a piano with an attached drumhead that he would hit with his right foot. As people danced, Ahmet and Herb could barely contain themselves. An utterly primitive, completely original artist was making a kind of music they had never heard before. Rushing up to Longhair after his set was over, they told him just how much they wanted to sign him to Atlantic. I'm terribly sorry, said Longhair. I signed with Mercury last week. In Ahmet's version of the story, the pianist then added, but I signed with them as Roland Bird. With you, I can be Professor Longhair. In 1956, Atlantic had their greatest signing to date, the raw and unequal talent of Ray Charles. Here's Ahmed. I was in front of the building where our office was. I ran to Dave Brubeck and he said, what's happening, what's new? I said, you want to hear something new? It was like six o'clock at night or seven. That nobody was in the office. I went up, unlocked the door, took him to my office, and I played him some Ray Charles, you know, piano doodlings and so forth, you know. He said, my God, that is a fabulous player, fabulous player. Who is that? I said, that's Ray Charles. He said, I never heard of him, you know. Then in 1967, Amit signed Aretha Franklin. Here's Amit, Jerry Wexler, and Aretha discussing her experience at Atlantic. Jerry Wexler called me up and told me we had a good chance to sign up Aretha Franklin. I said, Aretha Franklin? Now, now you didn't have huge hits mm-hmm. at Columbia. No. But, but you had a wonderful career there. I did. You made some great records Thank there. Thank you. Great records are not always great hits, mm. but they were mm-hmm. great records. At Columbia, at the time, Goddard Lieberson was the president, yes. and, and to me, he was just a name sitting somewhere in a big office. I never even met him, I don't think. Yes. But when I got to Atlantic, you and Jerry would come down to the studios, you would roll your sleeves up, we would get in there and laugh. I just remember we had a romping, stomping good well, we time. Here's Jerry italicizing Aretha's point. I'd like to point out that Atlantic Records is the only major record company for which the owners actually made records were line producers in the studio making records. During this period, those in charge of Atlantic began to realize that their target audience was no longer rural and black. Rather, it was teenage and white. To put it another way, the blues had a baby, and they called it rock and roll. And when we come back, more on the life story of one of the great music men of the 20th century, a man who in the end loved to do just one thing, Find great artists, promote them, and protect them. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib. 
And this is Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Aretha Franklin. She recorded I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You with the Swampers in Muscle Shoals. And we're talking about the life of Ahmed Ertegen, and he pulled Aretha out of a just a terrible, terrible-sounding career over at CBS Records, and the... Movie Muscle Shoals, the documentary, has just a remarkable scene where you see Aretha recording with this ragtag bunch of country boys and farm boys, and this is what came out. Well, we're diving into the fascinating life of an American transplant from Turkey, the founder of Atlantic Records, Ahmet Ertegen. We pick up with Ahmet's new direction for the company. He's getting ready to redirect their hiring in terms of genre. From Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin to rock and roll. It wasn't called Atlantic for nothing. In the mid-1960s, black American music had sparked a musical revolution across the sea. Ahmet checked into Hotel Britannia for a fresh injection of talent. This trip would determine the future of Atlantic Records. Here's Amit with the story. I happen to be in London at the Scotch Club where we're giving a party for Wilson Pickett. And my back was to the bandstand and I heard this, this, this really incredible uh, blues guitar player. And I was talking to Wilson, I figured, well, the only person who'd be playing this is this guitar player who's a southern boy. I said, uh, Wilson, I said, your guitar player is sensational. He said, my guitar player, he said, is having a drink at the bar. And I looked over and he was at the bar. So I turned back and here was this young man with an angelic face, very intent upon his playing and playing blues like B.B. King would play. And I thought, my God, I've never in my life heard anything like this. Eric Clapton the lead vocalist of Cream, shared all of Amit's interests and aesthetics. They were the first Atlantic group that brought the British wave of blues-oriented rock and roll to America. Once again, Atlantic Records was transformed. Here's Amit. I liked very much the fact that here were these young English musicians who had been brought up on the blues, on the original American black music. Since Ahmed really knew the blues and was sympathetic to it, he was able to recruit and sign blues artists like Clapton and Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page. It was that shared love of American music that really got him substantial entry. Led Zeppelin's Robert Plant examines this with Ahmed. When you heard the black music on the radio, yeah. it got you. Yeah. It not only got you, but you went into more depth of study 
And it wasn't a study for you. That was fun. It's but, an obsession for me. That's right. Yeah, I so, love it so, so much. So yeah. when you heard it, you became part of it. Mm, yeah. It became part of you. We all were basing most of our skills on American musicians. In November of 1968, one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time was signed by Atlantic. Here's Ahmet and Mick Jagger discussing the signing of Led Zeppelin. We never heard the band. We never heard a demo. Have they actually done anything at that time when you signed them? Like they hadn't made a... No, that... And we it was like know, a band on paper. We didn't man. know the other two members. It was like a band on paper, really. Yeah. I mean, they were all good musicians. And yeah, we, we know we're going to call them the New Yardbirds. That was the name. Yeah, okay. That we're going to call But uh, they, they changed it to Led Zeppelin. But, I think that was preferable. Yeah. <laughs> but that's how that happened. <laughs> The important thing to understand is the kind of deal that Ahmed originally made with Led Zeppelin was no deal that had ever been done like that before. It was totally different because Led Zeppelin had complete control over the artwork, over the sound of the record. Atlantic, by contract, was not even allowed to go into the studio while they were making a record unless they were invited in. They had control over whether Atlantic could put singles out because they didn't see themselves as a singles-oriented band. Here's Zeppelin's Jimmy Page reflecting with Ahmet on their relationship. Good for you to, for, for sort of letting us get away with certain things. I'll give you a good example with the fourth album, because by that time, we were getting so much bad press over here. And, you know, they were saying it's a hype and it's this and it's that because they didn't understand for one moment what we were doing. And so the reviews were crap. And so by the time it came to the fourth album, we said, right, okay, this is what's going to happen here. We'll put out an album with no name of the band on it, no nothing, and just say, here you are, take it or leave. Well, of course, it was the biggest album we had up to that point. But, you know, it could have just been one of those things that was drawn out. No, the name's got to be on there. No, but in the end, you just went, with okay, let's give it a shot. And it was brilliant. You know, thank you for that. It was good. kids came to see me from France and they'd written a book called La Route de Blues The Road of the Blues and they wanted me to write an introduction, a, a, a forward and these guys were young guys and they were talking about old blues, you know I said, how'd y'all learn about the blues? So I said, oh we are Led Zeppelin fans <laughs> In 1970 the Rolling Stones' long-term contract with Decca finally expired. Intent on landing the band, Amit flew to Los Angeles to meet with Mick Jagger at the Whiskey A Go-Go, where Chuck Berry was performing. Before he got there, Amit dined with radio programmer Bill Drake, who challenged him to a drinking contest. Both men chugged several bourbons and then enjoyed a dinner that included some expensive wine and more bourbon. Already jet-lagged, Ahmet dragged himself into the whiskey. When Mick arrived, they drank several toasts. As Mick brought up the Stone's new recording contract, Ahmet's head sagged forward and he fell asleep at the table. Not long after that, the Rolling Stones joined Atlantic. Here's Ahmet recounting the story. There are a lot of stories about me falling asleep. I fell asleep many times. One of the times was when Mick was telling me that the group had decided they wanted to record for Atlantic. 
uh, as he was telling me that, I dozed off because, you know, when I hear very loud music, uh, if I'm tired, it's, it makes me kind of doze off. They carried me out of that club. <laughs> That's one of the reasons that Mick wanted to sign with Atlantis. Man, we've, we've got to be with this guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, he hates pushy people. <laughs> Rolling Stone founder and editor Jan Wenner confessed, in the end, it was always, what does Amit think? Because Amit had the vision. Everyone deferred to Amit's taste, his judgment, his knowledge. Here's Amit. My basic philosophy in making a record is I always start thinking about the end product and what effect that will have on a potential listener. So you really start with the effect that you're trying to produce. That effect was success. Atlantic in the 80s had become a very different place. The independent record company he started was now part of a global music industry grossing over five billion dollars, nearly twice that of the movie industry. This is Lee Habib, and when we return, we will conclude with Ahmed Ertigan's story as head of Atlantic Records. And this is Our American Stories. And this day in history is brought to you by Hillsdale College, a great place to send your child. If you're interested in the arts, if you're interested in liberal arts, if you're interested in history. And when we come back, Again, the rest of the story of Ahmad Ertigan, born this day. We'll be right back. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and what a story you have here, folks. And we love bringing you stories about men who you should know, but probably don't, and you certainly know his work, and that is Ahmed Ertigan. And we're going to continue where we left off with his love of black music and his desire to bring that music to the public. And by the way, in addition to this story, there's another story I would urge you all to catch. If you have Netflix... Get the documentary Muscle Shoals, because there's another story there about Rick Hall. And it's the merging of white and black culture, white and black musicians in a little town in Alabama. Again, that's Muscle Shoals. And so much of the great, great recording of American black music happened there. And of course, one of the men behind that is Ahmad Ertigan. And we picked that story up where we left off. Atlantic in the 80s had become a very different place. The independent record company he started was now part of a global music industry, grossing over $5 billion, nearly twice that of the movie industry. Amit, now in his 60s, never lost his ear for talent. Here's Phil Collins and Amit. As well as being a friend, you're also this person that 
I had grown up admiring and, and, and eventually got to know and eventually grew to love this person. And you were, there you were saying, you must make this record and anything you can do to help me make it, you will do. And I went away like from that meeting just like feeling 10 feet tall because obviously I was brand new. The most fun is when you sit in a studio and you suddenly hear magic happening. In other words, you hear a sound and you say, oh my gosh, this is something that the general public cannot deny. I got a copy of that record before it came out. I remember very well because I started to play that as an example of what a hit record sounds like to people who would bring me a record saying, listen to this record. And they play what they thought was a great record. I said, I said, well, that's pretty good. Now listen to this record. And they would say, wow, what is that? Right? And it was, I said, that's a hit record. Although much has changed, success still comes down to the quality of a song that people want to hear again so badly that they will happily pay for the privilege. Better than anyone, Amit Erdogan understood that need, having experienced it himself from the time he was a child. Amit was fond of saying, the best way to predict the future is to make it. And make it he did. He helped create the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1983 for many reasons, not the least of which was that half the people he loved most in the world could be in it. Times change. And so does music. But passion for music and the ability to spot talent has not changed for Ahmet. Here's Kid Rock and Ahmet. I just signed with Atlantic. And they booked me at some gig with all these Hollywood people. Would come, you know, one of those gigs where everybody doesn't care who's playing. And Ahmet stood in the front and, and watched me. It was doing a show. Party. At a party, right? You're the only one that watched me and play. I tell you. It wasn't a rock and roll show. It was a rock and roll experience. And I tell you, the crowd witnessed something that they had never seen before. He was doing everything. Piano, drums, guitar, boom, boom, rapping, singing ballads. I just stood there, my mouth open. <laughs> well, this man is something else. And he is something else. And my first manager, man, I said, you're going to be bigger than Elvis Presley. You are, you are something else. Uh, and he was unknown then. I like you, too. Thank <laughs> <I like> you. <laughs> it's most interesting when you have a vision of an artist achieving a certain kind of musical climax on a record. It's a big payoff for people who love being involved in the creation of it. That's been my biggest driving force. He seems like one of the only people that really just loves music. Everybody else wants to, how are we going to market this record and where are we going to put it out and this, that, and the other. He's like, yeah, man, turn it up. That Amit died December 14th, 2006, at age 83 from a fall suffered backstage at a Rolling Stones concert. 
is an ending too perfect for any self-respecting Hollywood screenwriter to have written. But that's the story as only Amit could have told it. Here's Amit. The soul of jazz is blues, and the soul of rhythm and blues is blues. So blues is really the fountainhead of all these kinds of music. You know, we make all these artificial distinctions. In my mind, it's really black American music and the white imitation thereof. Georgia. Georgia. The whole day through. The important thing I, th I think is that when my brother and I were young kids and we first came to America, we were great jazz fans and we loved American music, black American music. At a time when black singers and black musicians were not generally helped by society in America. We tried and were able not only to help them, but to build something ourselves. Are you really gonna make me cry? A label which devoted a lot of its energy to jazz and blues and rock and roll. That's what I'm talking about. There is a point at which all this music comes together. The blues, the music of the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and 50s. The music that Louis Armstrong heard when he was growing up and that enabled him to express so much feeling in his music. All of that was part of something that Nesui and I felt and, and that somehow against all odds we were able to make something out of it and I'm proud of that, but I'm most proud of the artists that helped us do that. The real reason Amit will be remembered is because by dedicating his life to music, Amit Erdogan gave people all over the world, many of whom still do not know his name, the soundtrack of their lives. And there you have it, folks. It doesn't get much better than that. A story about a man you should have known your whole life. I bumped into his life story at a young age. I was lucky enough to be in a few clubs where he was just sitting there listening to the local talent. And anywhere you popped up, if you were a music fan in New York City during the 50s, 60s, 70s, or 80s, Ahmed Ertigan in all likelihood, was in the club himself somewhere that night if he was in New York because he didn't leave this to other people. He didn't see this as work that was beneath him to go to a, to go to a club and catch a new act. He was always excited, loved the latest trends. And, well, I want to end this hour where it all began for Ahmed Ertigan in the end, and that's with the career of Ray Charles. And some of the early recordings are some of the best there's some of the simplest, starkest. There's some blues element. There's some jazz element. Let's take a listen to a classic old Ray Charles, Chestnut, Losing Hand. I gamble on your love, baby. 
And got a losing hand I gamble on your love, baby Yes, and got a losing hand Your ways keep changing like the shift in desert sand. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And to listen to all of our best stuff, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Let's close things out again with Ray Charles. While I was playing fair, baby. I know you didn't care But I love you just the same I thought I'd be your king, baby Yes, and you could be my queen I thought I'd be your king, baby Yes, you could be my queen But you used me for your joker Cause I thought